0: This evening we are starting a series of studies on the seven I Am statements of Jesus. Now, these are unique to the book of uh, the Gospel of John, where John only mentions these statements. And if you look at the purpose of uh, the Gospel of John, John has written this gospel so that we may know who Jesus is. And all these I am statements actually gives us a lot more information about His purpose, why He came into this world, and He has put it together in this type of a, a simple statements. Okay? Seven simple statements which also enable us to understand who Jesus really is. So these seven statements reveal to us who He is and what He came to do. And it shows his nature and his heart towards his people. Now, what are the seven i am statements you have it on your notes? I am the bread of life in john six thirty five I am the light of the world in john eight twelve I am the gate for the sheep, or I am the door for the sheep in John chapters ten and verse seven. I am the good shepherd, John ten and verse eleven the gate of the sheep is verse seven of chapter ten. Good Shepherd, chapter ten, verse eleven. I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter eleven and verse twenty-five. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Famous verse, John fourteen six. And I am the true wine. John 15, 1. In these next couple of weeks, now we will look at each of these statements. In this first session, we are looking at uh, a little more of the introductory of why did Jesus use these statements or. What do these statements really imply? And also we will look at each of these statements in a statement by statement. We may be trying the next couple of weeks to do it in maybe in another three or four weeks so that it's not uh, spread out too long. So what does the word I am mean? What does the word I am mean? Now the Gospel of John is in the first place where this phrase I am is mentioned, isn't it? Now, if you notice, if you look back to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3, we have this statement when Moses asked God, God, who shall I say has sent me? Give me a name. Uh, and then God responds and says, tell him, tell the people that I am has sent you. Now, before this uh, declaration of God to say his name, he was called as the Elohim. If you notice in Genesis, we find this aspect of what God said or in the beginning, God created. That's the Elohim, the triune God. There was no specific name, but he was addressed as God, Lord. Now, from here onwards, if you notice, the Lord uses this name, I am. So if Elohim now was a title rather than a personal name, now God gives a personal name to his people so that they can call him by this name. And not just any name, but a name that has power over all things because God is powerful. He is the self-sufficient God. He is always. So when you're thinking about this name, I am, he's declaring that whatever you need, I am there. This is the God who is all powerful, who is very much present with us. Not a God who is distanced, you know? not a God of creation. Yes, he is there, but a God who has come down to man and revealed himself. And that is how he started off when, God, uh, when Moses asked God, who shall I say has sent me? He says, this is the name. Because this God, the Creator, is interested in your suffering, is interested in what you are going through, and is willing to come and help you (coughs) to be your aid in your suffering to get you out of Egypt. That is why this name was introduced. This name was introduced to emphasize God's relationship with man, his desire for man, and his wanting to help him out in his misery. And this is why Jesus uses this phrase, I am, because Jesus, if you notice, is basically the word becoming flesh. God not just being there, but God willing to come down and meet with us, live with us and experience humanity and also in the process, pay the penalty for our sins so that we too can have that relationship with God. So this phrase, I am, has been used by God in Exodus chapter 3 to connect himself with his people. So this is where this phrase is used right through, or 300 times roughly in the Old Testament, primarily using, using it to speak about God's connection with his people. So Jesus takes up this in a statement or this phrase, I am, to use it to show how he, as God, has now connected himself to us. And uh, oftentimes when you are looking at each of these uh, statements, you will find there is a context for each of these statements that he makes. And it is also in relation maybe with a miracle he has done or a healing he has done, something that has happened, and he draws a principle from that to teach us, hey, look here, this is what has happened, but there is more. This is the physical but there's a spiritual meaning to it and then he uses this phrase to help them understand. So just as much as Jesus used parables, everyday situations to explain spiritual truths to them, he uses some of these miracles that he did to say, hey, that's not the end in itself. There is more. The more part of it is the spiritual life that God wants to give his people. And oftentimes people in that time, as well as in today's time, were happy with just the physical. If you notice, for example, in you know, this passage of Jesus being the bread of life, it happened soon after he fed the 5,000, and uh, they came again the next day. You know, and Jesus asked them plainly, are you come so that you, know, you had free dinner, now you want free breakfast? You know, not in so many words, but Jesus was saying, you know, are you looking only for something to eat? Isn't there something more than just the physical eating? Yes, bread gives life to you, but there's something more that will give you much more better life that is eternal. So he takes up this. So This is why the next time maybe they saw bread, they would remember, hey, Jesus said he is the bread of life. And then maybe when they were hungry after they have eaten the bread, they would have realized, hey, Jesus said, if you eat of this, then you will never hunger. You will never thirst. And this is the the principle or the teaching that Jesus wants to do. So for us, maybe, the I AM statements could be, you know, okay, it's like a a simple grammatical statement being made, I am doing this or I am going here. But for the Jews, this statement I AM (coughs) was much more because it was a name that was exclusively used by God, given by God to show who He is. So even in normal conversations, they would never use this phrase, I am, because it was exclusively used for God. So if a person asked a question, where are you going? Instead of saying, I am going here, which would be good English, you know, they would respond and say, your humble servant is going here, because they did not want to use the phrase, I am, because the phrase, I am, was used exclusively for God. So when Jesus now uses these phrases, I am, for us in English, it may seem more oh, he just made a statement, but every time the Jew heard this phrase, I am, you know, it would have been a declaration to them to say, hey, Jesus is identifying himself with God. This is why at times they were even angry and wanted to kill him. So this phrase, I am, one, it is speaking about God's connection with us. It is also speaking about God's sovereignty and and, uh, 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 authority, the all-powerful God able to help us in our time of need and anything that we are going through because God is the one who meets our needs. And it is also just as much for the Jews that this name I am is a declaration of God himself. So this is the reason why Jesus used this phrase. Now now you must uh, read these statements with this background in mind. If we don't put this background of another you know, deity or the Godhead part of it, of Jesus, then it may just appear to me, us as just a good statement. I am the bread of life. But no, every time Jesus made this statement, Jesus was telling them, I am more than what you are seeing me to be because I am the one who is eternal life. And my prayer is that as we look at each of these you know, statements in the coming weeks, our eyes will also be opened by God to see more of who He really is because these statements are revealing about Himself to us. So that we won't just uh, be happy, yes, I know this statement, but we would be able to understand these statements and then come to a fresh, uh, newer, more powerful revelation of God's desire to connect with us, reveal Himself to us and also say, That our hearts can only be satisfied in Him and Him alone. (laughs) So, Jesus Christ is the great I am. And on several occasions, He uses this phrase, I am. This is why, if you notice, Paul writing to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, He says, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. What is that name? The name, I am the name of Jesus that every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father, Jesus is Lord. The name that is above all other names is the word Lord, which is equivalent to Yahweh. Or the exact equivalent of the words, I am. So the God that has been revealed in the Old Testament as I am, Paul writing in the New Testament says, hey, this is the name that has been given to Jesus. So Jesus is the one who is been declaring and who's been revealed, revealing to us. If you notice again in um, You know, when Jesus is speaking with a Samaritan woman, and then she says, you know, yes, you know, when the Messiah comes, then he will reveal everything to us. And Jesus then said, he who speaks to you, I am he. Literally, it would mean the one who is speaking to you, I am. In other words, you are saying he is the Messiah, he is the Messiah. Now, definitely the Samaritan woman who would have, you know, sort of got a little glimpse about this because she realized that he is just not just the one and not a normal person. He is more than a man because that's how she runs to the village and speaks about, come see here is a man who you know, has told me everything that I have ever done. Recognizes, you know, the deity and she asks this question, could this be the Messiah, because Jesus has spoken about the Messiah being He Himself. (laughs) Okay? And also, if you notice in John chapter 8 and verse 32, He uses these words to refer to His deity where He says, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. In other words, He was saying, Unless you believe that Jesus is Lord, is God, there's no chance. You're going to die in your sins. So let's remember to read these phrases when it comes in scripture as Jesus' declaration to the people of who he really was. If you notice a lot of people say that you know, hey, Jesus never said that he was God. You know, it's only Paul who made him God or you know, maybe a little later at baptism he suddenly recognized that he was God. No, no all these phrases are actually pointing to the fact of who Jesus really is. And if you notice the classic statement in John chapter 8 verse 58 where he says to the people, Before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. So if in other passages, he used it in normal conversation, seemingly, so if people got it, they understood it, if they didn't get it, you know, you know they just slipped it off or it was just another statement. But in John chapter 8 and verse 58, it is very, very clear because that is not good grammar, isn't it? Before Abraham was born, I am. That's not good grammar. You may say maybe I was. You know. But before Abraham was born, he says, I am. I am the ever-present one and that is something that can be used only for God. We have our beginnings, you know, we have our endings. But for God, there is no beginning, there is no ending. So when it comes to Abraham, he had a beginning and an ending. But when it comes to Jesus, he says, I had no beginning because even before Abraham was born, I have always existed. This is why, this is why they picked up stones, the Jews who were listening to him, to kill him, because they clearly understood, you know, it was in black and white, if you were to say, it was very, very clearly understood that Jesus is equating himself with God. And that's what Jesus came to do in this world, isn't it? He did not come into this world just so that he would live a good life, just so that he could be a good moral example, no. He came into this world to connect himself to us and to show that he is God, one who has come into this world, for this connection. And if you believe in that connection that Jesus is God, this is what he has done for you, then that connection takes place. But if you don't believe in Jesus as being God, and you just say he was just a good man, and you use all these statements as just explanations, then you have missed out on the purpose of these statements. John Chapter 20 And verse 31 tells us very clearly the purpose why John wrote this Gospel where he says, These things are written. What? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He started off John's Gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God and the Word became flesh. So he's speaking about the Word, he's speaking about Jesus and his whole Gospel is centered around this fact of who Jesus really is. And one pattern in which he teaches us through his, this Gospel about who Jesus is, is from these seven I AM statements. Okay? So that's a a little introduction for us to understand the importance of these statements, the relevance of these statements, the context of these statements, so that we can see much more clearly why Jesus used these statements and what does it mean for us today. Okay? So this evening we are looking at I AM the Bread of Life. In the coming weeks, we will do two statements at a time. So that we are not, you know, spending too long a time, but it will definitely be relevant for us. So the statement this evening is, "I am the bread of life." You know, the source of life is Jesus Himself, and if you notice in John chapter six, this is, you know, uh, the passage where Jesus feeds the five thousand, and soon after He is feeding the five thousand. You know, in verses thirty-five to 51, this whole narrative that Jesus is speaking to them about bread, about life. You know. He gave them physical bread and then he uses that analogy to speak about the spiritual bread. He also takes them back into the Old Testament where they had manna in the wilderness, which was a physical bread, which are all signs of types without, you know, about what was to come later on. So Jesus is saying, hey, these things happened, were you aware of that? Did you understand the relevance of that? The meaning of that? Why this bread came down from heaven just as much as I have come down from heaven. That bread that you ate, you had to eat it (laughs) continuously. You couldn't just store it. It has to be a a continuous process. It has a, a pattern of how you needed to pick it up. There were instructions that were given. There are instructions about how you can have spiritual life. So don't miss out. So the source of this life that this bread that will give us eternal life is God himself. If you notice in this passage itself in John chapter 6, there are three times that he mentions in uh, this statement. In John chapter 6 and verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, in John chapter 6, verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. And in John chapter 6, verse 51, if in case they have still not grasped this very clearly, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, Jesus is taking them step by step. If in case they were still, you know, their eyes were spiritual, eyes were still closed to see anything spiritual connection between physical bread and spiritual bread, he helps them understand step by step, step by step, breaks it down and says, hey, you just had bread, you're still thirsty, hungry, isn't it? But if you eat of this bread, you will never hunger. And this bread is not physical, this bread is spiritual. If you notice, Jesus, when he spoke to the Samaritan woman, he says, if you you drink of the water that I give you, you will never thirst. So immediately a question was, hey, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to get the water? Physical. So Jesus takes a physical situation and helps them to understand that there's more to life than just the physical. There's more to life than just the physical. And that is the simple principle that God continues to teach us in everyday life, isn't it? The whole reason for God connecting himself with man is that there is a spiritual dimension to man. God has placed eternity in our hearts and he's helping us to understand that there's nothing this world can give us will really satisfy. But if we have found our satisfaction in the Lord, then we are able to go through in know life here more than conquerors, victorious. So in John chapter 6, he's actually speaking about two kinds of food. One, food for the body, which is necessary, but not the most important. And then the food for the inner man, the spirit, which is definitely essential. What the people needed was not food, but life. And that life is a gift. And Jesus' contrast was that food only sustains life, but Jesus gives eternal life. Yes, physical food is important, but there are more important things in life than physical food. A lot of people are living only to eat, isn't it? They are all foodies. They want this food, they want that food, thinking that life is soon going to get over. So as a result, make the best of life by eating all different types of food. Jesus hey, look here, food is important. Fine. But there's more, there's more exciting things than food. There's more life giving things than food. Any amount of food, any type of food that you eat, after some time, you will definitely feel hungry. But the bread of life that you receive from God is something that will never you know, sort of uh, make you feel you know, hungry because you are constantly satisfied with what God gives to us. Now, the world gives us different substitutes to fill the spiritual hunger in us because there's a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts you know, because God has created us for himself. So if we are not filling that emptiness with God himself, then the world has different, different substitutes. And the devil makes sure that he gives us these substitutes cleverly wrapped up in in enticing wrappers and things. If you eat this, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, you you will get a high. You will feel great. You will feel satisfaction. But if you notice nothing that the world gives to us can ever really satisfy. Kent Hughes in his commentary, say in a writing about this statement, I am the bread of life, he says, it is no coincidence that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, you know the meaning of Bethlehem? Bethlehem means the house of bread. So, this is prophesied hundreds of years earlier in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Jesus says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. This is prophesied that he'll be born in Bethlehem, the house of bread emphasizing that, yes, there's going to be a link-up and Jesus uses these uh, terms to help them to understand scripture and help them to understand the purpose of Christ coming into this world. And the Bible says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? And the Bible also speaks about, you know, he took the bread and he broke it. Okay? All these are all analogies of what God has done for us in Christ. It was planned by God long long ago right before even our birth, before the foundations of this world. This is the plan of God that Jesus would come into this world and be the one who will satisfy us, who will satisfy us. There is nothing in this world that that can ever really fully satisfy. Now we may say yes we are believers, yes we have responded to Christ, now, but how often we have started out with Christ, yes, and at that point of time when we came to him and said, Lord, you are the only one, you are the Messiah, you are the Lord, I give myself to you. But over a period of time, we can think that God doesn't really satisfy. Maybe he went through hardships, maybe he went through troubles, maybe he went through testings, and, uh, and then you questioned God and maybe you lost your satisfaction. Remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, their hearts were still in Egypt. They thought that was life because they had onions and garlic and all sorts of things. But they forgot that they were living in captivity. They were not free people. Now God has given them freedom, but their hearts were still back there. Why? Because their heart was not satisfied in God. So we need to be careful. Even though we say, yes, we are believers, we must always ask ourselves, is my heart satisfied today in the Lord? Or is there some dissatisfaction that has crept in? If there is some dissatisfaction that has crept in, study God's word. Even through these seven I am statements, to say, God wants to connect with us. And as we are willing to connect with him back again, things become a little more clear, clearer. Maybe our expectations of God was something and now, you know, that was not fulfilled, so our hearts have become distant. But as we connect with him, things will become clear, and our satisfaction will be much, much stronger. C.S. <coughs> Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory says, we are half-hearted creatures Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. These are things that people of the world pursue. Yes, they give you satisfaction momentarily, but your hearts are never fully satisfied. You always want that little more. You always want that little more. And that satisfaction wanes away. But a life with God is joy ever. More joy forevermore. So, Jesus' declaration, I am the bread of life, connects this incident of the feeding of the 5,000 and connects it to why He came into this world. He did not come so that they could get a free meal every day, He did not come so that they could have their illnesses healed every day. No, He came for a much greater purpose. He came so that, you know, so that. Not just physical will be met. Yes, God is connected with that. God is concerned about that, but so that our spiritual would really be met. That is why he said, you know, this is the heavenly bread that has come down from heaven. We need more than physical bread and we need it from someone other than ourselves. We cannot feed it ourselves, you know, we need it from someone who can do that. And that's what the manna really represented. They wanted the bread. They wanted the meal. But God said, yes, you cannot produce it. I will give it to you. So the manna represents Jesus who has been sent from God, who has been sent down from heaven. And we have to take it by faith. You know, we have to take it by faith and don't think that you can store up as it were for a rainy day to say one day you go for a camp and that boost will last you for a couple of weeks now. It is a daily continuous meeting with God. That is what eating of the bread comes about. As we draw from him strength is and you know, released for us. If we take the first commandment you know, which says thou shalt have no other gods before me and turn it into a Positive statement it will be you shall have only me That is what Jesus is doing here The negative of you shall have no other gods before me becomes a positive to say as long as you have me you have Everything you shall have only me He's also the bread of life in two senses and one yes, he is the one who gives us life Okay, but also it gives life to others. You know. We receive life and as a result we in turn are able to give this to others as well. If you notice another I am statements where he says I am the light of the world and he says you are the light of the world. When Christ is living in us, when the connection has been made between God and man, that connection can be used by God to speak to others so that they can also be connected. That is Jesus' purpose. He has come into this world so that we can have the connection and he ended his life with a great commission, you go and bring people to the Lord as well. <coughs> In John chapter 6 and verse 27, Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So don't be uh, taken up by the glamorous packages that the world gives to us for different different things. Something new in the market, something that will you know, fulfill your innermost dreams, Not, nothing in whatever package the world gives to us can ever really fulfill our satisfaction. It is only God who is the bread of life. Warren Wiersbe in his uh, commentary writes that it is interesting to compare the manna to Jesus Christ. A couple of important points he tells us. First of all, it came from heaven at night. Jesus came from heaven when men were living in darkness. It fell on the dew. Christ came, who was born of the Spirit of God. It was not defiled by the earth. Christ was sinless, separate from sinners. It was a small, round and white, suggesting his humility, eternality and purity. It was sweet to the taste. Christ is sweet to those who trust him. It had to be taken and eaten. Christ must be received and appropriated by faith. It came as a free gift. Christ is the free gift of God to the world. There was sufficient for all. Christ is sufficient for all. If you did not pick it up, you walked on it. If you do not receive Christ, you reject Him and walk over Him. Finally, it was wilderness food. Christ is our food in this pilgrim journey to heaven. Another author, Kent Hughes, also mentions some more similarities where he says, Manna was white like fallen snow, just as Christ was without blemish or imperfection. Manna was also accessible. That was one of its main virtues. When a man walked outside the camp to gather it, he had a choice. He could either tread on it or he could pick it up. We can either tread upon Jesus or we can take Him as our Savior. And to change metaphors, the scripture says that Jesus can either be a cornerstone or a stumbling stone. How we respond to Him makes all the difference. Okay. So the source, he says, I am the bread of life, looking for life. Don't look in all the wrong places. Look for life in the Lord himself. Secondly, the stipulation for receiving this bread. How can this bread give us life? Simple principle, Jesus says, he who comes to me and believes on me. The only stipulation to obtain this bread is to come and believe come and believe and the gospel is a gospel of whosoever isn't it anyone who comes anyone who believes can receive this life it's as simple as that but how often in that simplicity people stumble over it because they think i have to do something about it no you don't have to do anything about it you just come and receive it it's a free gift you know it is free food that has been given to you. Come and pick it up. You can pick up and take it, you know, and that's what God is telling. But how often people hesitate. But in order to understand this come and believe, you know, this is two things together. You need to come. Yes, you know, you cannot say, I you know, let him come to me. I you need to come to the Lord. And you also need to believe. Now this word believe, you know, is uh, different from how we would normally use it in our everyday conversations. When we speak about something we believe, we speak more about uh, head knowledge as it were. But this word speaks of more than the intellectual mental capacity to grasp these truths. This is basically speaking about the involvement of the will to that which you believe in your head, in other words, there's a, a you know, threefold component of it. You believe in your head, okay? You respond in your heart and your emotions, and you respond in your will to that which you have believed. So saving faith does not stop at the mind level, but it is manifest in the heart level, you know. And the Bible says that even the demons believe that there is one God and they tremble. That is just head knowledge. Yes, the demons believe that there is only one God. But just because they believe that there is only one God, that doesn't make them believers. Okay? So it is not just the head knowledge of what we believe, but it is also the heart response to that with our emotions, and much more than that, it is our response with the will to that which you believe in. So faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It is not just a head and an emotions. That faith has to be coupled with an action, with an act of the will. This is why a lot of Christians have missed out on this come and believe, because Sometimes, over the years, people have said, you make this statement, you say this prayer, you believe in your heart, Christ has died on the cross for you, they nod their heads, yes, I have believed. But they have never really seen their lives changed. Why? Because that's not saving faith. It has still stuck up on the head, maybe, or maybe they have been so upset with Jesus dying on the cross, they say, poor Jesus, our emotions are stirred and say, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm saying yes to God. Hey, that is not faith. That is not the word belief over here, you know. Saving faith leads to action. It is never alone. You know, it has to lead to action. That's why James clarifying it much more clearly clearer, he says, Faith without works is dead. If a man says, I have faith, but his life is not showing it, it shows that it has just been a head belief. His heart has not been changed. His will has not been changed. So, the source is the Lord himself. The stipulation on how we receive this is common belief. And the satisfaction when we do that, Jesus with full authority says, you will never hunger, never thirst. He who comes to me will not hunger. It's a double negative, you know, saying without a shadow of doubt, I'm giving you a 100% guarantee if you come and respond to Christ, then there will be no dissatisfaction whatsoever. So when you're speaking about these two phrases, remember, come and believe. It's a present tense. It's a continuous coming before him. And it's a believing, not in the head, but responding in the will. And if we do that, then the Lord says, you will be satisfied. And I'm sure each one of us this evening when we look back into our lives and if we have made a genuine commitment before God we will be able to say honestly through whatever he has taken me through I know I'm totally satisfied in who he is and what he is doing and will do for me recognizing that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our innermost longings. A couple of thoughts, again, when you're thinking of practical application of this you know, coming to the Lord. You know, it is not just coming physically. You can attend a Bible study, you can attend a church regularly. That is not just coming. You, know. you can believe and sing all the songs, worship, hymns, everything possible. But if your lifestyle is not really changed, you know, then that is a very deceptive and a dangerous sinner state that you are living in. because we have to be sure in our hearts that Jesus is God, yes, but we also have to be sure in our heart to submit ourselves so fully to Him that we have satisfaction every day of our lives. You know. James Smith has put it across this way, where he says, Those who eat of this bread will not seek satisfaction from any other source. Those who eat of this bread will not seek satisfaction from any other source. Oftentimes, I give this illustration. If you have gone to a house and they have served you a meal, you know, and you have had your full, and suddenly the host comes in and says, Oh, we forgot to give you this, you know, thing that we prepared. You like it so much, you know. Now, if your stomach is full and you are happy with the food that was actually served to you, when this comes in, you'll say, no, no, I'm full, maybe sometime later. But if you are not really happy with the food that you have eaten and here's a food that you really enjoy, you'll say, give me more, give me more. And that's what James Smith is saying. Those who eat of this bread will not seek satisfaction from any other source. If you are looking for satisfaction from any other source, this thought will say, hey, check out, are you really satisfied with what God has offering you? Those who are walking in the sunshine have little regard for candles. If you are already in the light, full sunlight, you are not going to carry a candle over there, isn't it? The pilgrim who has a fountain of water springing up within his own soul will not be strongly tempted to stoop at the muddy pools by the dusty Highway. If you have that clear water, why are you going to drink dirty water which the world is offering? So, if you are looking for satisfaction in all that the world has to offer, this evening we must ask ourselves are we really satisfied with Jesus? Has He really given us that bread of life that satisfies our innermost being? So, He says over here, He who comes to me will never be hungry, will never thirst. You know. It is with full assurance. Okay. Now, we are hungry and thirsty every day physically, but when we have Jesus, we have our spiritual hunger and thirst point. and this can be done only by Jesus himself. C.S. Lewis has observed that the problem is not that our cravings are too big, but that our cravings are much too small and too easily satisfied with lesser things. We assume that we must get a control on our cravings and subdue them, if not eradicate them. The reality of satisfaction is not the denial of our cravings, but in redirecting them from small things to the one great thing. There are cravings that God has put within us, but if we are happy, with just those little cravings. If you are happy, it's like, you know, with the starters and you're not really, you know, waiting for the great big meal. And I say, I'm full, I'm happy. You're missing out on what God has really in store for us. But how often we are happy, nibbling with what the world has to offer and forgetting the feast that God wants to give to us, (laughs) okay? So he says, you know, if you eat of this bread, you will never hunger you will never thirst again. Christ does not bring emptiness to our hearts, but he fills it to the brim so that we are totally satisfied. Listen to the words of this hymn entitled Satisfied by Clara Williams, where she writes, All my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped will quench the burning Of the thirst I felt within. Feeding on the husks around me, till my strength was almost gone, longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Poor I was and sought for riches, something that will satisfy. But the dust I gathered around me only mocked my soul's sad cry. Well of water ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my redeemer is to me. Hallelujah! I have found him, whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his blood, I now am saved. This evening, can we really honestly sing that song with assurance to say that, yes, Jesus satisfies my longings and I'm saved by his blood. Let me close summarizing all these thoughts together, you know, what we have learned this evening. Number one, by equating himself with bread, Jesus is saying that he is essential for life. We can't do without him, you know. And that is I suggest just as much as bread is important or food is important, you may say, no, I don't like bread, but basically food. Just as much as food is important, Jesus is saying that he is essential for our everyday life. Secondly, the life Jesus is referring to is not physical life but eternal life. You know, Jesus was trying to get another Jews and thinking only about their physical realm off from that into the spiritual. And that's what God is trying to tell us this evening. Yes, physical is there, but they say there's much more to life. There's much more to life than life here on earth. There's much more to life than the physical. Help, Lord, to realize this truth. That's what Jesus is telling the people. Thirdly, very important, Jesus is making another claim to deity. As we mentioned, the name I am is the covenant name of God and it's a name that was used exclusively you know, for God Himself. The Jews never used it for their <coughs> everyday usage. It was a name that spelled God Himself. Fourthly, notice the words come and believe. This is an invitation for those listening to place their faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. Coming to Jesus involves making a choice to forsake the world and to follow Him. Believing in Jesus means placing our faith in him so that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says will do and that he is the only one who can actually do it. Fifthly, the words hunger and thirst. Jesus is not talking about elevating physical hunger and thirst, but he gives us a guarantee that we will never really spiritually thirst again our hearts will be satisfied. It is that cry of Eureka to say, that which my soul was longing for so long, I have found that satisfaction and I'm living in that satisfaction having drawn of the life-giving power. I'm also wanting to share that life-giving power to people around me. Let me close with this application question. When uh, When was the time you looked to something that you truly thought will satisfy And left you wanting for even more. Maybe some situation, maybe some food, maybe something and you thought, hey, if I have this, I'll be happy. There are so many people who think like that, isn't it? If I get this position, I'll be happy. If I get this job, I'll be happy. If I get this thing, I'll be happy. But then, maybe you got that, maybe you didn't get that and then there was dissatisfaction. But when we have Jesus, whatever we go through in life, our hearts are never dissatisfied because He is the one who is constantly there with us. Let's bow our heads and prayer together.